0: Hello, I am Claire Williams.
1: I
2: am Robert Kubica.
1: I am Christian Horner. I'm Johnny Herbert. I
3: am Alan Prost. I am Lewis Hamilton.
1: Hello, I'm Nico Rosberg. Hello, I'm Jackie Stewart. And you're
4: listening to Beyond the Grid. Hello everyone, Tom Clarkson here and it's my pleasure to introduce the season finale of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 Wireless Headphones. Yes, our first season is drawing to a close, but don't fear. We'll be back in the first week of January for two very special shows before Beyond the Grid's weekly slot returns later in 2019, flat out as ever. Well, it's been one hell of a year in Formula One and a hell of a year for Beyond the Grid too. And to round things off for this final episode of 2018, I thought I'd pick some of my favourite moments from the 24 shows we've done so far. It's been no easy task because I've loved talking to all of the guests with nothing but a couple of microphones for company and the occasional Spice Girl. We kicked off the series back in July, welcoming reigning champion Lewis Hamilton to his first ever podcast appearance. Typically, Lewis didn't disappoint. In fact, he was in an extremely thoughtful frame of mind. Formula One, uh,
3: I would say Formula One is. Well, I mean, form One has given me a life, given me a, a purpose, which is pretty special. But form One has also broken me. It's, it's, it's broken me and it's built me and it's broken me and it's built me. You know, it's... What do you mean broken me? Well, when you go through it, you put so much into it, it breaks your heart. It kills you when you fail, when you stumble, when everyone's watching when you stumble. And then when you get back up and you succeed, it lifts you up. So, um... You fall and you break a bone and you you heal and you keep going. And so that's what I mean by it. It's the emotion of sport, I guess, isn't it? It is. The the passion you have for what you do and the will to succeed is just something that I, I, it's hard to express. But everyone has it in some shape or form. And you love the emotional highs and lows? The
4: fact that it's
5: so unpredictable I don't know if I can or is that hindsight
3: again I don't know if I can say that I love the highs and lows because the lows are the worst Uh, and I'm generally quite an emotional person so I I would say there are athletes and drivers and just performers that there are some that have if you imagine it could be not the heartbeat line but if you imagine like an oscillation uh, a line that's oscillating up and down up and down up and down there are there are some, say that's an emotional line, there are some that have higher ups and downs. It's off the charts and some of them are more balanced. I would say probably the, the best performers like Serena, like Muhammad Ali, there's this more, more calm. And the calmer you can get it, I think the better it, it can be for you. But if, but if you're, I mean, particularly at the beginning of my career, I was peaks, peaks, up and down, just freaking hard to keep it focused, you know? But if you can then learn to breathe and calm that that squealy oscillation line in the motion, you can then focus a lot better. I guess it's almost the same as if, you look, if you're, sh- you're shooting at a target, but you're moving around. If you can breathe and calm it down, you're much more on target.
4: Hold your breath.
3: Yeah, I think Formula One has, it's helped me grow. I've gained a lot more confidence um, within myself. What is Given me is the platform to be able to do things that I want to do, live a life that I could have only have dreamed of. But it's also given me an opportunity to work with like big huge teams of people, big companies, travel around the world, see different cultures, um, dibble and dabble in different lingos, try food different foods. Um.
4: you love travel, don't you? I get the impression I do, of I just anyway. I
3: just I just really appreciate culture and particularly when you get to visit different places, you get to it's great. I like and appreciate seeing different cultures, different religions, all these different things. It's uh, We're all so similar, but also so different in so many ways.
4: Well, Lewis, I think we can say F1 well and truly built you up this year as you stormed your way to your fifth world title. But what of the last man to beat Hamilton to a world championship? How did Nico Rosberg go about beating teammate Hamilton in 2016? This is really a true story. Yeah, because we were so
6: on the edge with everything. And weight was we were overweight with the car, so our body weight really mattered. And it came to the long summer break. And you can't go on a diet in the middle of the season. Why not? It just destroys you mentally. Okay. Just, it just kills you. yeah. And it's so important to, have a, to play the long game mentally in a season like that. So you, I couldn't afford to go on diet. Uh, and so the only solution was, I thought about it myself, just let's lose some leg muscles. So I did stop cycling. And then after the summer break, we went to uh, Suzuka. And I was on pole by two hundredths of a second. And one kilo of the leg muscles, which I lost, is worth three hundredths of a second per lap. And you won the Grand Prix from pole. And I won the race. Yeah. And that really um, messed uh, Lewis's head a little bit on that weekend there. And so this was a really
4: decisive step towards the championship. Wow. What a great story. And oh, there are there other, go on, is there anything else you can share with us about your marginal gains? I think that's that's fascinating in terms of, is there anything else you could do within the team
6: well, another big one from from that year was really the gloves, yeah. Because we, uh, I worked on my gloves to remove any kinds of seams or or any kind of patches that were between my finger and the clutch paddle, to really get the the best possible feel and make it as thin as possible, and that really uh, really helped me as well. Because uh, going away from that, the way the standard Puma glove was done, to making it uh, custom made just for myself, and the way the clutch finger, just the finger, yeah, is uh, is modeled, that was. Um, a huge help for me and I had a string of like four or five races where I, I nailed the starts and then Lewis like was wondering like what the hell is going on why is he doing starts so much so well and then he, he took over that uh, like glove design as well so that was another another thing that was yeah very helpful
4: it was a case of no stone left unturned for Nico and it paid off handsomely Rosberg, of course, started his F1 career at Williams, and deputy team principal Claire Williams was our guest on episode 20. I loved her description about the influence of her late mother Ginny on the team.
0: Um, I don't think you can necessarily was steering the ship with Frank. It wasn't like she was in meetings, you know, the factory nine to five, Monday to Friday, but she definitely was an amazing um, had an amazing ear. She was a great listener for Frank when he wanted to talk about stuff. And when he didn't, she would certainly, you know, wade in anyway. You know, There are stories about how mum affected driver decisions over the years. would you amazing think she really stories. did? Yeah, she, oh, she absolutely did. If it wasn't for mum, Nigel wouldn't have driven our car in the 80s. No way. What um, was it about
4: Nigel that she liked so much?
0: Frank and Patrick were going for in one particular direction and he'd come to the house and um, so I think who would to come have to the, house? the driver who I'm not going to name. Oh, go on. No, I'm not it's doing It's a long time that. ago. No, I'm not no. doing it. It's not right. Um, come to the house for kind of, you know, the final supper, sign the contract. And he stayed over. And the next morning when he'd gone, Frank asked my mum, you know, what do you reckon? And she said, oh, for God's sake, absolutely not. And... <laughs> Dad was a bit was he really rude about. at dinner or something. No, and I was like, why? What on earth do you do? And said, well, the guy made his bed this morning. No racing driver worth their salt makes their bed, Frank.
4: I've asked Claire many times to tell me the name of the driver who made his bed, and she refuses to tell me. But one driver it most certainly wasn't was Gerhard Berger. The happy-go-lucky Austrian epitomised the carefree nature of F1 in the 80s and 90s, where he teamed up with Ayrton Senna at McLaren.
7: Me, I try to get the result, I try to to not miss the party, try to see if if, if, if the people was nice looking in the party. I try to have a nice holiday, I try to make some money. So I try to capture a lot of things. And in some ways it worked out. The only small thing I'm missing at the moment is the world championship. Well, I think it wasn't a question of speed, it was a question of the package. Obviously, Erdogan had a big, big advantage to me. He started when he was four years old with karting, and he, was, he had already 400 races uh, uh, behind him when he started in Formula 1, where I started racing when I was 21. Obviously, I was with 24 already in Formula 1, but in total, I think I had about 40 races from zero to Formula 1. So you never can get this experience back. So from this side, Erdogan was an extremely experienced guy. In combination with a lot of natural talent, in combination with a really good brain, he was very switched on. He was a street fighter, a Brazilian street fighter. And then he had a big ability to concentration. I mean, he had an extremely strong concentration. Uh, And that made him different to all the rest. I mean, I think you could cut off his hand and he still wouldn't feel it until the race was over. And uh, that gave him an extra boost. Now, when you came into McLaren at the start of 1990 and you
4: out him in Phoenix at the opening race, that must have been a bit of a shock for him. But were you
7: surprised that you'd put one over on him so soon? No, I was not surprised at all. Because, you know, at this, this moment, all my teammates, in some way, I could beat. Out of just my natural talent. Because I never went to physical training, so I never did anything. And, you know, I just, just talent but that was also my big handicap because it allowed me until this moment to handle it in the way I was handled so when I signed up for for McLaren I have to say I was quite naive because I thought Erdogan was just going to be the next one was going to be in troubles and, uh, and I went to Brazil and I was, and, and was the king of the rain. first day was practice in the red I was quickest second day was practice in the dry I was quickest so I said, well, that's not a big deal. You know? Unfortunately, I, I, I crashed because really the car was made for Alan Brost and I, I was stuck with my legs between the battle because I really had not space in the car, so it didn't worry me. Uh, and so the race was over. I felt good. I went to holiday like usual to have some fun. I went back to Brazil thought about everything, come back and then never beat him again. <laughs>
4: it's hard not to love Gerhard, isn't it? And McLaren certainly did. And that's where Carlos Sainz is headed in 2019. Carlos is the son of two-time world rally champion Carlos Sainz Sr. And as he told me, he learned how to get
8: sideways at a very young age. And um, we, we ended up doing a course with Porsche from 1990s, a nice driving course. What's that like? engine in the back engine in the back rear wheel drive <laughs> uh, <laughs> fun. really good fun and we went through non studded tires little studded tires big studded tires by the end when we caught the big studded tires where it's really really grippy there was a truck a three kilometer truck and I was always driving you know he was having his coffees trying to teach me but by the end of the day I really got really fast and I was getting his lap times and my lap times and I realized that I've got really, really close to him. I actually, we went for a qualifying lab and I was like a 10th or two away from him and he got really angry. And you were how old? I was 15 years old and yeah, driving in the ice, which so how, is not my <laughs> specialty really. <laughs> so but how did that deal with that? I was having a lot of fun and he could see that I was getting closer and he was laughing but you know with that kind of love that uh, this little <laughs> bastard what is he doing you know he's getting a bit too close to me he's, he has his pride also and um, he said okay now this exact same track we're going to turn it around and with the op- anti-clockwise and uh, you don't have one lap to recognize to do a recognitions lap. we go straight away this is what rally is about he gave me four seconds on that lap and I went back to reality.
4: <laughs> now, helping drivers learn the tricks of the trade is something my guest on episode 23, Rob Smedley, has become famous for. He's had an amazingly successful career, but who can forget the disappointment of Brazil 2008 when he and Felipe Massa were pipped at the world title by Lewis Hamilton. Not Rob, it seems. Yeah, I mean, the, the actual, the immediate... Aftermath you know people
9: people always think that the hardest thing for me was delivering the message that he wasn't world champion, but what you got to remember is I was still at work, you know, I was doing my job so so actually that as, as all I was interested in was where you know people were trying to drag me off the pit wall and saying, "We've done it, we've done it you know, and like jumping on me and congratulating me and hugging me and saying, "We've done it with world champions." but I knew we weren't. I knew that I had to see you know those two little dots on the GPS. Uh, you know, I was intently watching Glock and, uh, and and Lewis, and and seeing how that played out. And kind of as everyone's trying to drag me off the pit wall in the last corner in Turn Twelve in Brazil, I thought to myself, you know, shit, he's a, he's ahead. You know, I, I think he's ahead, and I, and I'm trying to intently watch it while you've got all of these like, you know, mechanics and engineers like trying to drag me off. And then as they're coming up the hill, I thought he's definitely ahead. That's 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 Hamilton. That's the McLaren ahead on the GPS and then I like, looked at page one and like, his name flashes up as as having come fifth and at that point you know it was a fairly simple message it was just to say oh you know mate you've done a great job you know we've done a great job all year we come here you know with with a very slim chance of doing it and actually you know we we'd gone there with that in mind that the, the championships is, is Lewis's we're going to go out there and have a bit of fun but in fact there was always in in the back of of, of my mind and actually what I put in the, the guys' minds as well, the lads who work on the car, was that we have a real strong chance here. You know, the form that Felipe's in and it's Brazil. And, you know, you've got a guy who's in his second year of Formula One who can completely get it wrong, which, bless him, he almost did it at that age um, we've got a real chance. So let's go into it and let's, let's do, you know, our maximum. And it was about not conveying that to Felipe. It was about keeping Felipe away from that. But as we edged, you know, more and more through the weekend, it became more and more apparent that this is really on. So, and then kind of to, you know, we fell at the the very final hurdle and it was then, you know, just delivering a normal message. just saying, we've done a great job. We've, we've all, we can all be so proud of each other. But we're not world champions but hey we missed it by a point and and we've and we've lost out to a great competitor and a guy who's gone on to be you know the greatest driver of his generation so i don't think there's any disgrace there where the emotion come out was when i stopped work you know you stop work and and kind of you know you take your headset off and you and you go away and you you kind of sit down and and i found that this feels a bit funny this doesn't feel like you know a normal win or or loss this this actually feels much more profound than that and then I got really emotional, and actually I, I went away and I, and I cried for for about an hour. and I was just on my own. I just found a little quiet part of of the garage that was kind of like boxed off. and I sat there and every so often I'd like compose myself and I'd think, yeah, I'm all right now. And then I start crying again. <laughs> and then it took me about an hour to to actually compose myself and then you know because it was just the it was just you know that that intense emotion of competition for a full year. And I think I'd have been like that if we'd have won it. To be honest, I'm I'm fairly convinced because because the emotion was, you know, the the you've you've kind of put your mind, body, and and, and spirit into it, and everything, and not nothing else has mattered for for 12 months, you know, to get yourself into that situation, and then it's just the emotion that comes pouring out afterwards. So yeah, at the time I I wasn't, you know, right in the very immediate aftermath, I wasn't emotional, but but for a couple of hours afterwards, I was very emotional.
4: A man with better memories from Interlagos is Emerson Fittipaldi, who won the first Brazilian Grand Prix there in 1973. We caught up at the track and discussed everything from meeting the Beatles to driving for Lotus, but it was his poignant recollections of Ayrton Senna's death that stay with me.
10: You know, it was uh, incredible. I was testing Michigan Speedway for Indianapolis. I was running full tanks. And then Chuck, who was the team manager, said, Emerson, your family's on the phone. Beat, beat, And uh, I mean, I was doing a full tank run Sunday.
4: Had you ever been called in like that in Never. your career?
10: No, Never. When you say your family, I say some, something serious happened to my family. Then I went down, I stopped immediately. And then my wife say, Ayrton just died. Imola. Hey, I was shocked. I, we stopped. I went home. It was a big shock because Ayrton, to me, was immortal. You know, was someone who, who could not die driving a race car. get very mm, Even now? I used to watch my Formula One test in Interlagos. He and Milton, his father, I was testing copper sugar, he finished testing cars. He came here to watch me.
4: As a small boy?
10: He was 14, 15 years old.
4: Emotional memories for Emo.
10: Looking forward,
4: Robert Kubitzer is destined for an emotional return to F1 next season. Eight years after a terrifying rally crash that left him with debilitating injuries. Amazingly, he still finds positives in his rally career, believing it made him a better race driver.
2: You remember when I say I was not thinking about Formula 1 when I was kid? I was searching or trying to become as best as i can i was fan of rally and i'm big fan of rally but i was searching something a way of formal one which will make me become better Formula one driver so i was trying to find to learn things which the other drivers which i'm racing they don't have it and i still think in some very little circumstances very little conditions Thanks to running, which I was doing very little, I scored more points in 2010 than if I would not do it. Why? Uh, sensibility. Uh, many times happened that I didn't stop to put intermediates. I keep going on slicks that everybody was coming and I gained massive positions. There are those things you cannot see. The only who can judge and who can can understand is yourself because sensibility and sensitivity on steering wheel is only only driver can know what he needs and it's true that i pay a big price and i'm still paying it but it was not purely for fun Uh, there was behind something I, i was not talking about it because What really happened is that the desire of becoming a better driver, more complete driver, the desire of finding something which others they don't have or that I can improve are my areas where I I can improve because I think every moment we can learn something. I was not happy to be as good as I was. I need more. And I thought Rally will give me this and it, it really gave me. The problem is that I pay too high price.
4: Kubica will be racing for Williams next year. And another mover on the 2019 grid will be Pierre Gasly. We caught up in Russia where he told me how excited he was about his impending move to Red Bull Racing, but also about how his friendship with fellow F1 star Esteban Ocon turned sour.
11: And uh, and we used to train on the same track. And, and we used to, of course, we were seven at the time. And, and, and of course, we used to spend so much time together, train... Uh, to the same track, going on weekends together. We used to come at home many times, and same for for myself. We uh, went to his place. I even remember times that in the winter there were nobody coming to uh, to our racetrack, which was on uh, Bonville, 30 minutes from where I live. We were the only one there, snowing like hell, and we were going for like three, four laps. Coming back when our hands uh, were completely freezing. And going in the truck, back of the truck with the with the heater, just to get warm for 15 minutes, and then after going back on track for five other the laps with uh, the slick tires on, and then just driving on the on the snow. And um, no, honestly, we, we did spend like some some fantastic uh, fantastic time together. And like I think brothers, it, it, like brothers, or yeah, almost like like brothers, because honestly, you know, at the time when you are young, you just need to to, to drive all the time. So we used to to go on Wednesday, on Saturday, on Sunday. <laughs> Um, and all the time together, and I think in the end it was really good because it really pushed us massively. You know, we both have a really competitive mindset, and and we, uh, of course, we were uh, really friends at the time, and, um, and we really wanted to beat each other. So I think it was uh, the best thing which uh, which could have happened to us um, to really push us and 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 give us. All the energy to try to beat each other and in the end it uh, raised uh, our, both our our level. I mean the relationship unfortunately got um, got yeah a lot worse at some point in karting where when we started to fight for the for the world cup european championship and and also national championship and um and i think in the end it was a positive thing that um the thing happened to us because it really pushed us so much harder um to beat each other and in the end you know like uh, it's 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 quite funny to to see both of us uh knowing formula one let me tell you it's not often that drivers speak so candidly about their
4: personal lives This is a sad tale that you hope gets sorted out between them soon. Ocon, for his part, made revelations of a different kind in episode four. I mean, check out his appetite.
12: Yeah, exactly. But I have a chance is that I'm very light. I'm 4% of fat. So, um,
4: yeah. That's kind of marathon runner.
12: Yeah, yeah. It is. It is. But that's a chance. Because if I was normal, let's say, I would be 80 something kilos. So.
4: Are there any negatives with having that little body fat in terms well, of yeah. do you Do you get colds and stuff? Yeah, that I, get,
12: I get sick quite easily, but I sleep 12 or 14 hours a night
4: also. Not the night before a race? Well, 12 before a race, yeah. You sleep 12, <laughs> 12 hours? <laughs> yes. You're not nervous? You don't sort of wake up early in the morning or? No, no. 12 hours? Yeah. And if I had a biscuit, I'm so sorry, I'm very rude, but if I had a biscuit, would you eat it? Yeah you would eat a biscuit? I oh, yeah, for sure. I eat
12: six times a day. <laughs> so what, you eat little amounts? No, not little amounts.
4: Well, how are you no, only no, no. got four percent.
12: Well, if I had the answer, I would, I would tell you. But you, no, I, and like in the morning, I eat like omelets, six, seven eggs with mushrooms, stuff. and Six or seven. I'm just, I'm just repeating. Six, for, six seven eggs
4: yeah. For breakfast.
12: Yeah, yeah. And then for lunch? Then for lunch, uh, normally, you know, one one chicken breast is portion already i have two and a half with full side of like mashed potato and stuff plus dessert every plus t- a dessert yeah yeah. every two hours two three hours i'm absolutely gobsmacked by that it's quite crazy and i lost if you think about it i lost four and a half kilos since the beginning of the year Why? because i'm training less and traveling you i don't eat sometimes there is days where i don't i cannot eat six times a day um, so, uh, yeah, in, so the, in you... the training period, that's what I do. I, I eat every two hours, two, three hours, but I cannot do that all the time in the season. So so I lost four and a half kilos.
4: And where's that muscle gone? Is it from your neck? Is no, it... no, the neck stays the same. I think it's, it's legs mainly. Ocon will not be on the grid in 2019, partly due to Daniel Ricciardo moving from Red Bull Racing to Renault. It was a move that caught most of the F1 paddock on the hop, including Daniel's Red Bull boss, Christian Horner, who I chatted to
13: on the very day the news broke. I guess, you know, when you look at it, it's, it's felt like that. You know, Daniel's had conversations with Dietrich, with myself, with Helmut, and we've bent over backwards to make it, make it happen. But if someone doesn't, heart's not really in it, then, and it's just felt, like that and in the end of the day we gave Daniel everything that he wanted and asked for and it still wasn't enough I think in his his mind to say that I want to keep going at Red Bull so it wasn't about money, it wasn't about status, it wasn't about position or commitment or duration I think he felt that you know I need to I need to take something else on at this stage in my career now it might be an inspired choice it might be one that do you you know, think he was he, nervous he, about Honda that he regrets. I don't think so. I think you know he he knows the comparative performance of the two engines and reliability. So you know we were even prepared to do a one year agreement. So he was available to Ferrari and Mercedes should they come knocking in twelve months' time. So because obviously they haven't taken so him up.
4: Out with
13: the person, not they? at all. Yeah, not, not at all. I was. I, I thought he was winding me up. To be honest, he rang me literally yesterday afternoon to say I'm going to Renault So you, this is a wind up for the summer holidays um, but uh, that is, you know it was, then became very clear that that was his choice and you have to respect that you know And Renault are, are a growing team they're uh, you know they're committing you know resource there um, maybe it's an inspired choice so what are you going to do?
4: about a driver, a second driver in the team? Well, we're
13: fortunate that we've got, you know, several drivers under contract that are great talents. So I think we're just gonna sit back and just look, evaluate what the situation is. Also see what comes out of the, you know, it's an incredibly attractive car to be driving. and I don't think we're gonna be short of, of requests and offers.
4: Will you consider someone who's not part of the Red Bull family today?
13: I think we'll look at everything, but I think that the, the preferred route will be very much to invest, as has been so successful, in home talent. Um, Vettel, Vest- Verstappen. Oh, I see. Vettel's going to come you know, and drive the car. No. Ricardo, you know, signs, Gas. They're all products that have, you know, delivered for us. They're, they're all products of the Red Bull Junior programme.
4: OK, so of the names you've just listed, it's looking
13: Saints and Gasly, or am I
4: reading too much into that?
13: I don't read too much at the moment. I mean, okay. we'll, you know, both of those guys are very quick drivers. So, um, uh, and I think this just gives us an opportunity to take a breath and with, they're under contract anyway. Red
4: Bull are based in Milton Keynes at the very factory that was once the home of Stuart Grand Prix. So let's listen next to an extract from my chat with Sir Jackie Stewart who was fascinating on his shifting attitude towards danger in F1. Here he is discussing the aftermath of Jochen Rint's death at Monza in 1970. Ken Tittle,
1: 35, 45 minutes after that, said, Jackie, you've got to go back out. I was in the march and it was the last practice session. And I have no embarrassment by saying that I was in tears when I got into the car. But then, and this is the animal of the racing driver, when the visor went down, I drove the car, I put a lap in only, I did the warm up lap round, and the first flying lap was the fastest lap I've ever driven at Mons at that time. And there was no thought of, that. some of the journalists said to me, oh, that must have been a death wish or something, it had nothing to do with it. Your head clicked in, and you were doing the same smooth things that you were doing before to to put in the fastest lap that you had done ever at Monza. So the animal is a strange animal in those days. That animal doesn't live today because they're, they're not surrounded by death. They're not surrounded by bereavement. They're not surrounded by standing and offering your condolences to the mother, the father, the grandfather, the grandmother, the children... It just doesn't exist today. So in some ways, it was the making of a man. In other ways, it was the breaking of a man.
4: He's the oldest living world champion, and it's always a pleasure to hear from Jackie. Jackie. Before we move to my next selection, I wanted to say a massive thank you for joining us on our podcast journey this F1 season. It's been great fun. And if I had to pick one standout theme that runs through the heart of these podcasts, I'd have to say it's the sheer focus and concentration that it takes to be an F1 driver. That noise off, focus on is exactly what our presenting partner Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones are all about. Obviously, we can't all be F1 drivers, although we might be in our heads, but we all have our own fast-paced lives and jobs to tackle on a daily basis in a world full of potential distraction. The world-class noise-canceling technology of the QC352s can help to block out distractions so you can focus on what really matters to you. With the comfortable plush earphones and up to 20 hours of battery life, you're good to go. And to help make your life even simpler, the latest generation of these headphones has been adapted to work with Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. But don't just take my word for it. If you haven't already, go to Bose.com where you'll get full details on all that the QC35 IIs can do and find out how they can make a difference to your day. Now, talking of favourites... Jackie was a Geneva resident for many years, so let's listen next to a current one, Roman Grosjean, who was particularly effervescent when talking about his kids. Lewis Hamilton referred to children as parachutes. Not so for Roman.
5: I don't think so. I think they actually helps you to have a, a good life, a normal life, uh, and that you do things for people that you care more than any, anyone in the world, you know. Um, they are, they are your blood. and There's nothing more important in life than that. And Formula One stops tomorrow. Yeah, I'm going to be sad and I'm going to miss it. But I still have my family and, and my kids and I'll be working and, and doing things for them. Uh, when you don't have them and you have a, a very tough Grand you come back home and you can eat that tough Grand for a couple of days, a few days. And when you've got kids, they help you to recenter. And then you're like, yeah, I'm going to go on the next one. I'm, I'm going to do good just because I want them to be proud. The thing
4: about young children is they don't care if you've had a good day or a bad day.
5: They just want daddy, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yes. Well, saying that after <laughs> Barcelona, my oldest son Sasha got him on the phone. He gave me so much <laughs> <Did he really laughs> t- such a tough time, <laughs> <laughs> man. That was Remind the hardest ha- thing. How old Sasha? He's five years old. <laughs> oh my god, I was crying by then. He's like, Daddy, what did you do? Why did you spin? Why did you crash? I told you not to do so. No, you shouldn't have done that. Oh, my God, that was it. I was say? destroyed.
4: What do you say? Just, uh, can I have what? mommy back, please?
5: <laughs> yeah, it was actually, yeah. She, she just picked up the phone and said, Sasha, you can't you can talk like this to you. But it was the truth. Yeah. Kids doesn't have any filter. Yeah. And it was right at the time. It yeah. was right. No, but my gosh. That was a tough one, uh, but on the other hand, as I say, I came back from Austria, I came back from a lot of places, spa, and it's just, daddy, you're the best in the world, and they are jumping your heart, and they're very happy, and they just want to play with you.
4: I can relate to that chaos romance. Now, it was with the Enstone-based Renault team that Grosjean made his F1 debut in 2009. Johnny Herbert was another driver to step into the big time with that team, but it almost never happened after his horrific Formula 3000 accident at Brands Hatch in 1988. Here, Johnny relives the accident 30 years on, and it still sends shivers down my spine.
14: I only got eye sort of out because it just happened so quick. I think it was about 161 mile an hour impact, something like that. So you don't have a chance to react but I can remember the first impact I can remember all the energy in my my head moving forward I don't really ima- I remember this, the feel of the spinning around because my eyes are closed at this time then I remember another massive sort of head on impact uh, and all the sort of energy moving and my body moving then it spins around and stops and then I remember opening my eyes and then I the first thing I noticed was I could see the trees through my monocoque so as soon as I saw that I remember sort of putting my head back and going, knock me out, knock me out, knock me out. Because I just realised, I thought I'd lost my, my legs from my knee down because I couldn't see my legs. I could only see my top of my knees. So my first thoughts were, legs are gone. And how much pain are you in at this point? Nothing. So the body's Absolutely an amazing nothing. thing. Amazing, powerful, powerful thing that it can just take away all that normal pain that came sort of a couple of days later away. It's amazing how it does that. So there was no nothing that was giving me any ideas of actually no you've still got your legs on and your your foot is actually still on the left hand side but it's obviously it's losing a lot of blood and it's badly damaged no i had no no clue what was going on except when a marshal turned up i remember him putting his head into the cockpit Are you okay then he went to the front of the car and then he was all he, he was almost sort of sort of gagging sick at the front of it and I realised it's probably not not a still a good thing, but still thinking, actually, I've lost my legs at that point. So it was only until I woke up in hospital, crikey, six or seven hours later that I saw my legs were up and they were bandaged, covered in blood, but bandaged up. So then I realised I still have my feet.
4: If Johnny's career was defined by the effects of that crash, Alan Prost's career will forever be linked to his battles with Ayrton Senna. I sat down with a four-time champ in Singapore, and unsurprisingly, his relationship with the great Brazilian was discussed at length. Here he describes why they were so
15: often at loggerheads. It was too difficult because we... we you, you, you can't talk about... You have to listen what I'm going to say, because that's why I'm very upset about the film Sena. Because you can't talk about this story that means our story, when we were racing all together, together, without understanding what happened after I retired. All the discussion we had together with Ayrton during the winter, before his accident. And then you, if you understand that, you understand why he was like this, what what was his motivation. And obviously his. Uh, Is a strange person. If you ask me, you know, all the names you have uh, uh, said before, Mansell, Piquet, Rosberg, uh, Damon, all these guys, you know, they are all different, you know, but Ayrton is special. He's very special. So you cannot... I am very, I would say, Cartesian, you know. Uh, So it's very, very easy to to read, you know, what I think, what I say. And uh, Ayrton is different. So you cannot... You cannot judge, you cannot sit and, and talk, you know. I have invited him once in my house in Switzerland when we were in the Geneva Motor Show. He did not talk, he did not say one word, you know. He was sleeping in, in, uh, in a canopy after, after lunch. And uh, I went to, to the Geneva Motor Show and I talked to the the guy, he was a friend of mine. and said, I, I explained to him what happened. He said, no, no, uh, don't worry. He told me that he has done that. I say, yeah, why? Because he did not want to talk to you because he doesn't want to become a friend. He has to fight against yourself. He doesn't want to become a friend, doesn't want to become close. It is very difficult when you have this kind of, but you understand everything, but you understand after. You always understand after in, in life, <laughs> you know, and it's uh, that's why I don't regret it was like this. I was like this. We had a different personality, different culture, different education. A uh, different way of uh, driving, different way of set up, set up the car, whatever. We were all different, but that is that is part of our success. That's why
4: Prost won his fourth and final world title with Williams, the team with which Jacques Villeneuve claimed the title in 1997. For Jacques, it was the culmination of a dream that started when his late father Gilles raced and starred for Ferrari. I asked him if he shared any traits with his swashbuckling dad, despite him passing away when Jack was very young.
16: Some, yes, I, I think, uh, but I'm not sure why, because he didn't, we didn't discuss them, or he wasn't present for, for me to, to to learn it from them. But I, I did get from him a lot of respect for the risk and how do you push the risk and the risk of the other, uh, the respect for the other competitors, because that was always very present uh, in his mind, and that's something that was uh, transferred. Somehow, I don't know if it was transferred through my mother or directly uh, through him while he was alive because I don't really have the memories. Okay, so you then... But see, there was always a feeling that you had to push the limit and take the risks, not because it would allow you to go faster, but just so you could do, or, do it while the others couldn't. You know, to show who, who was the bigger wolf in the pack. That, that, that's all it was. And that, I think I got from him th- while growing up and I had it while I was skiing. You know, if we were... Going to, to jump cliffs, I would make sure I would jump the bigger cliff. Why? Just because the other ones wouldn't, wouldn't have the, the guts to do it and, and so on. So there was always a little bit of that aspect and that was always present in, in my racing as well, like going through a Rouge flat when nobody else was doing it. There, there was pride in it that didn't bring you any lap time.
4: From a man with a Ferrari legend for a father to a man hoping to become a Ferrari legend in his own right. It's Charles Leclerc. For one so young, he speaks so eloquently. And here he is discussing an area he perceived to be a weakness early in his career.
17: Uh, um, I uh, First of all, I think that when I first started racing, I think my weak point was, was my mental strength. Uh, I think I was quite weak mentally, very emotional, and that was not great for me. And since the beginning, I've... I felt that it was my my weakness, and I started to work on it with Formula Medicine first, and then later in the years with the Ferrari Drivers Academy that have also some uh, mental trainers for uh, different types of situations. Uh, definitely, they they don't train you, and and, and there will ne- never be any uh, trainings to um, uh, yeah to, to to react better in a situation like like losing a, a parent, but. Um, But yeah, I I definitely became a lot stronger uh, mentally. First, thanks of that. Uh, Then there has been also quite a big loss, which was the one of 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 Jules for me. Uh, That was extremely hard to take, but that then uh, because of this whole situation made me also stronger mentally and uh, and then when my father passed away it was also extremely difficult but uh, somehow with all the work that I've done for racing especially it has helped me also pers- in, a, in a personal situation like this. Um, and and yeah, I think now, uh, if you ask me now, what is your biggest uh, quality is probably my mental strength, which uh, which has became from from a weakness to to, to my biggest uh, strength. To tell you whether I'm ready or not is something that I will not be able to say until I do my first race because I've never experienced a race with with uh, with a Ferrari. It's definitely something mythical. If you ask me about the pressure, I I think I can handle this. Um, because i have a mentality that i i don't feel the pressure at all uh, i know lots of people says yeah but the pressure in ferrari is on another level but i i my mentality just allows me to 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 take off all the pressure how do
6: you
15: do um, that
4: or is that do we go back to check a and formula medicine and
17: not really because i i don't really uh, take in consideration what people are expecting from me the only thing I I do is focusing on myself and try to uh, give the best um, possible performance on track. And I'm also very honest, if if I'm not good enough next year then I should be dropped uh, by Ferrari and this will be completely understandable for me.
4: Charles is one of the drivers who is sure to illuminate F1 in 2019 and I can't wait to see what he does in that Ferrari. And I have no doubt that his name will come up time and time again when I sit down with guests in the new year. Well, that pretty much wraps up this Christmas cracker edition of Beyond the Grid. I hope you've enjoyed listening to my best bits. It's been a genuine pleasure sharing these conversations with you this year. And I can't wait to bring you more in 2019. And just to whet your appetite, we have a few very special things up our sleeves for season two as well. So stay tuned. On behalf of all the team here at Beyond the Grid, thank you very much for listening this year and for helping make us one of Apple's best podcasts of 2018. And don't forget, you can listen to our entire back catalogue on Apple, Spotify or your favourite podcast app. And although the podcast is taking a temporary break, you can still give us your feedback on Twitter using the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid or via my Twitter handle at TomClarksonF1. Quite a few of you have been in touch to tell us how much you love our theme tune. Well, stick around at the end of the show for a bit of a treat. All that's left for me to do now is to wish each and every one of you a happy holiday season. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out.